you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Again, this just reinforces this pilgrimage theme that we've talked about that begins back in chapter 9. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem where he will ultimately be crucified. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. This is where the lectionary begins this morning, for those who had read your lectionary text this week. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, as a teacher, uh, that's an ominous request right off the bat, right? Or a parent, even. Uh, Before I ask you this, can you give me anything I want? (laughs) Um, Just before I throw it out there, I just want to test the grounds here, prepare you for what I'm asking for. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those, but it is for, those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles... Those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I'm going to fast forward to the end of Mark, chapter 15, uh, next to the last chapter, and read a couple of verses from there. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. I was having a conversation with somebody this week over lunch, and we were talking about how many jobs we had had in our lifetimes. And we're both fairly young individuals. I don't know if there's anybody else in here, but like, have you just had a lot of jobs in your life? I was looking back. There's some of them I can't even remember. Uh, I had a job that lasted about four hours one day. Um, It was my first job. It was in a warehouse. Uh, My wife's mother got me the job. They made, I think they made yarn or something, or I don't even know. They made some kind of really heavy, heavy fabric that was in bags. And my job was to go around with this order sheet and load my cart up with 50 and 60 pound bags all day and push it to a, to a truck, into a truck. There was no air conditioning. If there was, I don't remember it. Um, I was only 16 years old at the time. I worked up until lunchtime and I went to the manager and I was like, this is enough for me, but I didn't want to tell him that. Uh, I went to the manager and I said, hey, can I like, leave for lunch and come back? And he just looked at me and he's like, you're not coming back, are you? And I was like, nope. Uh, <laughs> He had obviously been watching from the front and seeing this poor little, at the time I was scrawny, believe it or not, uh, 16-year-old kid sweating and and really struggling with these bags. Uh, Even when I got into ministry, I worked jobs. Uh, I worked different kinds of jobs, but mostly uh, what I worked was sales jobs. Um, Sales jobs were good for me because they were people-oriented, which kept me interested. And uh, I was pretty good at sales, so I could make money, even in a commission-based environment. Um, And, you know, sales is one of those things that the hours stink at first, but if you're good at it, you get to pick your own schedule a lot of times, which worked out great for ministry, because I could do both when I was revitalizing churches that couldn't afford to uh, pay me a living salary or a living wage. Uh, The sales I mainly did was mobile phone sales. I worked for uh, several different carriers. But um, when I worked in sales, especially like in a commission-based setting, a commission-based sales environment, I observed that there were two motivations for selling, mainly. There were others. But there were two primary motivations that people used, that, that the, my colleagues used as they sold uh, mobile phones. Uh, one motivation, which is the purest motivation, was those that genuinely wanted to take care of the customer, Right? Those who genuinely would work with the customer, find out what they want, would serve the customer, and their approach, their philosophy to sales was take care of the customer and let commission take care of itself, which actually works out pretty good for those of you in sales. Take care of the customer, commission lots of times will take care of itself. Of course, then there's the second breed of salesmen whose philosophy is take care of yourself and only yourself, right? Watch out for yourself, earn as as much as you can. Customer service is only a means to the end of making as much as you can. Now one thing I observed about people who took the first approach, those who were willing to serve the customer and let commission take care of itself, was that these individuals were often uh, also the ones who would be willing to help out their colleagues in a pinch. The ones who were out there for themselves, if you ended up in a bind, you weren't going to get them to help you at all. They were not going to help you make money. But those who had a very customer service-oriented posture would often come around and help you. The crazy thing is, is that I always found that really those that were in it for themselves didn't make that much more money than those who served the customer well and worked well with their colleagues. Sometimes it was so, but not always. You could definitely make money looking out for yourself. You could definitely rise to the top looking out for yourself. Um, 
But you did just as well watching out for the customer and watching out for your colleagues. There was something about those individuals' approach to customer service that spilled over into the ways that they treated their peers. Even in a competitive environment, these salespersons, the ones that were very people-oriented, customer-oriented, these salespersons were the ones who would be willing to lose opportunities for themselves to help their neighbor out, out at the desk next to them. Now, these individuals did not always uh, beat their more selfish rivals, although it was close. And these other salespersons, these ones that often operated out of this uh, philosophy of they're in it for themselves, they're going to watch out for themselves, um, I never really understood what motivated them to be that way. In fact, I'm really not even sure what motivates one to be very customer service oriented either. By the way, I want to say something about those individuals who weren't customer service oriented. They still acted like they were customer service oriented, right? Like even though they were in it for themselves, they still acted like they were in it for the people that came to them. Um, but it was, a very, it was a very false sense of service and it was very self-serving and sometimes that went unbeknownst to the customer and they ended up with something they really couldn't afford and didn't need. Um, so I don't know what, where those motivations come from, but what I do know is that anytime anyone cannot let the commission take care of the commission or the reward take care of the reward, that often it is fear that is driving their work ethic. Underlying what they're doing is some kind of fear that there's not enough to go around, there's not enough customers, there's not enough merchandise, there's not enough whatever. In fact, I would say all greed, to some degree, is driven by fear, particularly fears of a self-preservation or selfish nature, right? And when we operate out of that paradigm, motivated by fear, it affects the way that we interact with those who come to us for something as well as those that we serve alongside of. Now perhaps somewhere in all of that, uh, we can find some understanding to the irony of the opening verses of our reading today. Right after Jesus predicts his destiny in Jerusalem, which by the way is a pretty grim uh, destiny, as soon as he predicts it in very explicit terms, I mean, in my opinion, compared to some of the other iterations of this in the Gospels, Jesus and Mark makes it pretty clear what's about to go down in Jerusalem. I mean, to the extent of the spitting and the flogging and the cursing and the killing, right? Like the whole passion narrative laid out in a verse. Um, he predicts this in very explicit terms to his disciples. And then the immediate response to this proclamation is that the disciples begin scurrying for positions of power and prestige. Now, it's not just James and John. By the way, Matthew says that James and John's mother asked on their behalf. Not exactly sure how this went down. The mother must have been involved, must have been involved somehow. Um, but it's not just these two. Because when the ten hear about their scurrying for power and prestige, the ten get very angry at them. The, the other ten get angry with James and John, presumably because they felt as though they were being cheated out of those spots in the kingdom themselves. Who are you to try to get spots? You know, what, what is this about? 
there was an anger towards these two on behalf of the ten. But what about this strange request on the heels uh, of a prediction of death? What about that? What's going on with that? Why on the heels of a prediction of gruesome abuse and death are the disciples' response that of scurrying for positions of power or prestige? Well, there's a few possibilities here. Um, perhaps the disciples completely misunderstood what Jesus was predicting about his future. Right? I mean, in Mark, the disciples aren't the brightest crayons in the box. Uh, they're constantly getting it wrong. Um, they constantly come short of what Jesus' um, assumed expectations of them are in the text. So maybe they just miss the point. I mean, that's kind of the way it sounds in the other Gospels. They just kind of miss it. They're not catching what he's saying. He's throwing it out. They're not getting it. Or perhaps the disciples were fixated on the promise that he would rise from the dead three days later. Maybe that's what caught their attention. Maybe they're talking about seats in his glory after the resurrection, right? After this great triumph over abuse and death and violence. Or perhaps the disciples were operating out of fear. Maybe they wanted to secure their futures precisely because they didn't like the future ending in the death of their leader. Perhaps this is a chance of just checking out the insurance policy a bit. So if this is going to go down, <clears throat> can you at least promise us that when all the dust settles, we'll be with you on your right hand and on your left hand? Like, what is our place in this very violent story, which I think is probably a fair question to ask. I know I would be asking that. But maybe, you know, when we think about this idea of fear, maybe this also reveals that the disciples didn't understand what glory was in the first place. Maybe glory meant something very different to Jesus than it meant for the disciples. Uh, some have called Mark... Uh, some scholars have called Mark a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And the reason that is is because in Mark's narrative, uh, the passion is at the heart of all of it. Jesus dying on a cross is the glorification of Jesus. In, John's or in Mark's gospel, Jesus is not referred to as the Son of God by any human until we have the crucifixion at the end. Now, we have... God calling Jesus the Son of God at his baptism. We have demons through humans calling Jesus the Son of God. But it isn't until Jesus is on the cross, and remember Mark is apocalyptic, it's revealing something to us. There's always like these moments of big revelation in Mark. And it is not until the cross that a Roman centurion, a non-Jewish person, looks and says, surely this person, this man is the Son of God. The cross is the pinnacle of Mark's narrative. Everything around it is in some way functioning as an extended introduction to the brutal abuse and killing of Jesus. In Mark, Christ's glory is in his crucifixion, not in his resurrection. In fact, the resurrection gets very little attention in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. It's mentioned in the earliest manuscripts, but nobody gets excited about it. <laughs> nobody goes out and tells anyone else. No one goes and shares it. 
In fact, the way Mark ends in the earliest manuscripts is kind of like, you know, those really bad movies that end and you're like, what in the world did I just watch? It's like that. It's like, what just happened? I need a conclusion, but it kind of leaves us holding our breath. But these reactions, these reactions that the disciples are having here, these are often the reactions of people who are living in apocalyptic times. Remember, Mark is writing this gospel at a time when Jerusalem is under siege. The temple is, has either fallen or is going to fall very soon. And the world, as all of these people in Jerusalem have known it, is about to fall apart. It's about to come to an end. A way of life is about to be gone. No more temple worship. No more Pharisees. No more Sadducees. No more scribes, really. They're barely mentioned in John because it's written so late. And they've already been out of the focus of the culture so long, John barely mentions them in his gospel. Because the world, as they knew it, was falling apart in 70 AD, 70 CE. And these reactions, similar to the ones the disciples had, are very common of those who are living in apocalyptic times. When everything you have ever known and found comfort in comes tumbling down, we often react by digging our heels in, denying that the world has changed, and working hard to secure our places at the top of the rubble heap when it all comes crumbling down. Folks, I think we're seeing a lot of that right now in our culture. A lot of scurrying to be on God's side so that when everything comes tumbling down, we'll at least look like we were right and that we're okay, at least, on top of the heaps of rubble. Last night I got a call from a pastor friend of mine who is uh, who's just absolutely burned out in ministry. He called me earlier that day and left me a voicemail, and I could tell by his voice that that's what he wanted to talk about. And so I had to wait till later when I had some time and silence to be able to talk to him. He shared with me that despite his efforts in trying to transform an older and more traditional congregation in his denomination, and I don't mean older by virtue of the membership, but by existence of the church, he talked to me about how he had tried to transform this very uh, traditional church, this church that was very steeped in some uh, old ways of doing things, but he had been sabotaged at every single turn he felt like he had taken. Sabotaged not only by a system that was built to be resistant to change, but by a new generation of Christians who, frightened by the tidal wave of social changes crashing around them, have chosen to dig their heels in and preserve the only thread of comfort and identity they have left. This group of people, although they are shrinking, they still fantasize that one day, all of this holding on will lead them to being a large church with an identity in the culture that proves once and for all they were right and everyone else was wrong. In their mind, they still think one day, miraculously, they're just going to be a megachurch and arrive on the scene and validate everything that they had done. And when he talked to me about the behavior of these members... I began to realize it was not too far off from what we read about here. They begin to 
devolve into meaningless arguments over positions within the church. They had false ideas of the glorification of their leaders even, right? This pastor couldn't even express to his membership how bad he was struggling because they had, against his will, continually pushed him onto some pedestal where they couldn't even hear his own humanity. They had total denial about the journey they were on. They didn't want to face the realities that were ahead of them. And they had a false hope in what God's glory might actually look like. Now one of the devices Mark employs in his gospel is the device of irony. He uses this often in, in his writings, these contrasts, these ironic contrasts. And he does this primarily because apocalyptic times forces us to confront our hypocrisy. Apocalyptic times forces us to confront our hypocrisy, our paradoxes, and our cognitive dissonances. And irony keeps us mindful that things are not always as they seem. Now, I provided a little bit of dramatic irony for you this morning. Some of you have caught on to it. In that I have read to you the end of the story a bit. I've read to you what actually happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. So the whole time we've been talking about this passage in the back of our minds is this ironic juxtaposition of what happens in Mark chapter 15. And we discover who actually does get to sit at Jesus' right hand and left in his glorification in Mark. It's not who you think. It's bandits. Sinners. Criminals. In that culture, people who had been cursed so bad that their only fate was to die on a Roman tree, a cross. This reading in Mark reveals to us the accusation on Jesus. It's a, another ironic accusation. King of the Jews. And just like the song we sang this morning, Jesus' throne was indeed the cross. What the Romans had written as a way to be condescending and poke fun was actually in Mark's gospel the reality. It was what was happening. This was indeed the king. And he was now in his kingdom. A kingdom that is cruciform in shape. And on his right and on his left are those whom the Father has chosen. Bandits, sinners, criminals. Now I've often thought of Jesus' prediction that James and John would indeed drink his cup as just being a prediction of their martyrdom, their deaths. That's why I've always read that. That, that when Jesus says, you will indeed, indeed drink my cup, you will indeed be baptized in my baptism, that he was only preparing them for their martyrdom in the future. But when I read this narrative in Mark, I discover that drinking Jesus' cup is more than just being willing to die a physical death. In some ways, I think that might actually be easier. Because what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to be counted with the criminals. To be painted as one of the bad guys. Drinking Jesus' cup means being called one of them, whatever your them may be. 
Because of its refusal to operate with a top-down model, the kingdom of God has no room for party lines, cultural labels, and fear-driven quest for power and prominence. Instead, Jesus invites his disciples to serve one another and to serve their enemies. Even Jesus on the cross from the other iterations of this tale, we find that on his right and on his left is one who is willing to be open to what Jesus was doing and what Jesus had come to do and one who still to his death was not. This is the call that Jesus issues his disciples into the kingdom. To serve one another, to serve their enemies, to be the least among the world, and to refuse what Walter Wink refers to as the typical domination system of this world. And when we as Christians refuse to participate in the domination systems of the world, be prepared to be mislabeled and to be mistreated. And sometimes I think that's one of our greatest fears right now. We feel like we need a label. We need a group. We need someone to have our back. When the call of discipleship is to serve and to love regardless of the labels. And that often means feeling very lonely. Wondering where God is even at in the midst of all of that. Be prepared to be mislabeled. Be prepared to be lied on. Be prepared to be mistreated. This is par for the course. Martyrdom is not just physical death. It's also in some ways a social death. A death of our desire for power and identity and prominence. But according to Mark, this is where God counts you as being in His glory. And folks, that is a major flip from the narrative we often buy into in this world, isn't it? That by suffering, that by walking out a life in the shape of the cross, we are actually walking in God's glory and dare I say even, God's victory. Now, um, it's been a year now since I've been your pastor. So uh, I've spent a year and I've listened and I've watched and I've observed and I've heard your testimonies and I've heard your stories and I've heard your heart. And it has become an unmistakable reality to me that Renovatus, whether you've realized it or not, has served in the margins as a hospital for those most wounded in church and in the culture wars. I can't tell you how many of you have told me if it weren't for Renovatus, I wouldn't be in church anymore. I came here on a whim because somebody said, after my church hurt, after what was done to me at my last church, go try this. Many of you came in with trepidation expecting the same old, same old. But you came here and you found healing. And you found wholeness. And you found community. We are an ER for the spiritually traumatized. And I just sense in my soul that it's coming time for us to fully step into that identity. Renovatus, we are a triage church. 
While we have members of this body on the front lines of justice work, charity work, works of subversive and prophetic action, we as a body function as a community of healing. We're a battlefield hospital, y'all. We're a field hospital. We're not as concerned with charging the heels as much as we're concerned with dragging bodies off of the battlefield and wrapping up the wounds, and that means even our enemies at times. Because if you read the history of battlefield hospitals, you'll find there were multiple times where the enemies were treated just like uh, those on your side and then even sent back to the enemy to fight again in some instances. And that means when we take that posture as a church of being the kind of church that offers healing and wholeness to those most hurt by religion and by church and by life and by the culture wars, when we take that posture, that means that we may never be understood. People may never get it. They may always scratch their head about those people that loves even the enemy. We may always be mislabeled. And we may not always be the tidiest. And we may not always have it together. Not even in the things that we are absolute about. We may be called them. Again, whatever your them is. We may find ourselves doing the dirty work of ministry covered in blood, including our own. But glory awaits. Glory awaits. Let them count us among one of them. Let our seats be filled with all of them. May our table be surrounded not by perfect people or church CEOs, but by the sick, the hurt, the lost, the confused, the lonely. And as we determine in ourselves to serve those that God has sent to us, I think that that is how we will learn to serve our colleagues who serve alongside of us. When we're no longer doing it for ourselves, but doing it for those to whom God sends us, it will change the way that we even view one another. In this reading, by the way, Jesus connects uh, two of the practices of the church with the cross. He connects baptism and the cup, Eucharist, with the cross. He says, will you be baptized into the baptism I'm baptized into? Will you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And he's referring to the cross. Because being baptized involves entering the new way of the cross. Taking it up and following Jesus, denying ourselves. Similarly, sharing the cup at the table, which we're going to do in just a moment, invites us into the way of the crucified Jesus. The table challenges all of our fear-driven quest for security. And it calls us to realize that we all share in the same cup. We live our lives in service to one another. We are great when we become the least. We experience glory when we live our lives in love and we let the glory 
take care of itself. No one leaves the table with their own glory still intact. No one. Will you stand with me? Musicians can come and get ready. And our servers too, I'm going to pray and we'll have the invitation. Father God, I want to um, just want to ask, Lord, that you, uh, that you take a word like this that is heavy and complicated even. Probably prompts some questions in all of us, God. I just ask that you take that and that you do in our hearts with it what only you can do, Lord. Words fall short when it comes to this kind of work, God. We can speak very arrogantly and even with a false confidence about our own willingness to be baptized into your baptism and to drink your cup. So God, help us. Search us and know us. Put a spotlight on our own pride and ego. And help us to discern how we can fight the good fight. To be a testimony and a witness to your goodness and your righteousness and your love and your justice. But without compromising our ability to be healers. To bind up the broken hearted. To wrap the wounds of those who are so hurt. To welcome those who've been mistreated. And may we be willing to be mistreated. May we be willing to be mislabeled. May we be willing to be misunderstood, God. Help us, Lord. Because we can't do this on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to receive communion this morning. If you're a guest with us, you're invited to receive communion with us. We have an open table. If you choose not to, that's fine as well. No pressure. We'll have prayer partners on either side of the front this morning. If you need prayer for anything at all, make your way up here. Even if you don't take communion and you still want prayer, make your way up to one of our prayer partners and they'll pray with you. We want to pray with you. We want to walk with you whatever it is you're going through. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it's the Lord who invites you, and it is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. 
As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.